You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 456 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, August 21st, 2022, and today we're going to talk about whether the American church really has idolized marriage and motherhood. The jumping off point for this episode is a Piece published at crossway.org, August 1st, 2022, by Jen Oshman, titled, When Marriage and Motherhood Become Idols. But before we get into that, I want to give you a little bit of a teaser for some upcoming content I would like to put out, hopefully this week. I've been under the weather, was hoping to record this podcast sooner, but I've had a awful sore throat yesterday. I just could not swallow without wincing and cringing and uh, doubling over a little bit. My wife gave me lots of essential oils to rub on my neck and uh, whether or not they actually (laughs) fixed the problem, I at least smelled good while I was in pain. So that was a morale boost. And uh, there also they might've helped. I don't know. I don't think they did any harm but I at least smelled good. Some of my kids walked into my home office while I was doing integration work, running missing data reports and things like that. And they came in and they said, oh man, you smell really good. I said, oh yeah, thank you. It's it's the essential oils. Thank you. Uh, It's your mom that uh, put that together for me. But that is to say, I would have recorded this podcast episode sooner. Did not get a chance to because wasn't feeling well. I have something of a backlog of some other content and some other topics I'd like to get to soon. I'm just going to focus on this one for now. And in the coming week, I hope to come out with a book review for Battle for the American Mind by Pete Hegseth and David Goodwin. I just read that book yesterday, started it and finished it yesterday while I was having a hard time swallowing. That, as well as the essential oils, helped me to feel much, much better. It was a very good, very, very good book. I give it five out of five stars, and I want to tell you all about it, but one thing at a time, we're going to talk about this marriage and motherhood becoming idols piece. Suffice to say, that will be a treat, and if you haven't yet Go out and get a copy. Also, buy my book, and this is why we homeschool. But in addition to that, I also want to discuss with you the latest, after a fashion, with my back and forth conversations with my cousin Tim Mullet over at the Bible Bashed podcast. Now, to be very clear, I do not like divulging other people's private information, sharing their private stories without their consent, especially if 
someone says to me, hey, can you just you know, not tell anybody about this? I want to keep this on the down low. If they confide in me and they say, hey, just you know, please don't spread this around, but I'm, I'm looking for some counsel on something or this thing happened and I want you to be aware of it or see if you have any thoughts on it. If they say, hey, you know, just please keep this to yourself, then that's that, right? I will keep it to myself. If they don't say, hey, keep this to yourself, then it really depends on whether I think there is a need for greater examination, more thorough examination of the topic. I also consider whether the things that have been shared with me are of a private nature. If they are of a private nature, that's one thing. But if it's somebody's own personal thoughts and convictions and some arguments that they've made, some claims that they've made that are bigger and macro, especially if they are a public figure, then I put that in a different category. And I think it's right for me to put that in a different category. If you write a book and I read your book, and then I start talking about what's in your book that I liked and what I didn't like, what I agreed with, and what I didn't agree with, what I learned that I didn't know before, or what maybe you had claimed that that's actually not the full story. There's a little bit more that we need to add to it in order to get a clearer picture. Well, I don't think I'm talking about anything that uh, shouldn't be out in the public. I could have a private conversation with you. And to some extent, I've been having private conversation with my cousin, Tim, because of things that he's saying on his podcast publicly, uh, actually in, in large measure, if not entirely, I am talking with him about things that he's been saying on his podcast. So if we have a private conversation about things that he's saying publicly, and then I'm saying some public things with regards to the position he's communicating publicly after having clarified uh, what it is that he means by certain things privately, uh, I don't think there's anything untoward about that. And I hope that that doesn't give anyone who would talk with me privately some kind of heebie-jeebies, like I'm going to all of a sudden start you know, notifying the press uh, anytime they tell me something that is meant to be private. That is not what it is. Now, if I am talking with someone privately who happens to be a public figure already, again, I think that goes in a little bit of a different category public or private figure, if they say, hey, I'm going to tell you something in confidence, please just keep this to yourself. Well, then unless somebody's life is at stake, this is a matter of life and death, and really this can't stay private. Yes, I'm going to keep it private. I'm going to keep it secret. I'm going to keep it safe. But I just wanted to clarify for now, even though I want to talk more about some of the uh, developments with regards to this exploration of emotions and what we do with them as Christians, whether we should rebuke one another as Christians when there's a sense that a certain emotion is inappropriate for the circumstance or the situation. Uh, that's a big deal. It might seem like a somewhat trivial deal, but I think it's a big deal. And insofar as my cousin Tim is a public figure, he's a pastor, he's an aesthetic counselor, he's got his Bible Bashed podcast. And uh, news broke this week that, <laughs> irony of ironies, uh, the Bible Bashed podcast is joining Protestia. I think that his comments, his statements, his positions with regards to rebuking people for their emotions, Christians for their emotions, uh, I think they're entirely fair game to discuss on this podcast. 
So we will. We are going to continue. We have been. I regret nothing so far. Uh, I don't think I regret anything anyway, so far as uh, what I have shared with you all to this point. Uh, there's been more discussion that I haven't shared, more things that I know that you don't need to know because it wouldn't be proper for me to be the one sharing them. But nevertheless, those are some things to look forward to in, I would say, the coming week, Lord willing, of podcasting. But jumping right in to the main topic, which is Jen Oshman's piece at crossway.org from August 1st. She starts off with a heading, and the heading is a question. Our highest calling, quote, motherhood is a woman's highest calling, end quote. It was said with awe, reverence, and authority. And it was said at a baby shower I went to a couple years ago. I was in attendance along with various friends, including one deeply saddened by infertility and one who longed to be married. Stop. Quick comment. Quick question. According to whom is motherhood a woman's highest calling? According to whom? Who said it? And what do the scriptures say? That's my first question right out the gate. I think that's how we need to read these kinds of articles, wherever they're published, whoever they're written by, who says, and (laughs) what does God's word say? Who do we reserve awe for? Who do we revere? Who do we regard as our ultimate authority? And for that matter too, since it's already here right from the jump, how much weight should it carry that Jen's friend is infertile or that her other friend is single? I think these are somewhat irrelevant to the question of motherhood as a calling. Is motherhood is a woman's highest calling? Is that statement a statement of our values? If so, well, then that's just your opinion, right? If someone says, I place a very high, I place the highest value, I place a very high value on motherhood. I think motherhood is a woman's highest calling. It's like, okay, well, that's your opinion. Let's not broad brush the entire American church with one person's statement of their own opinion. If we read book, chapter, verse in God's word, thus saith the Lord, motherhood is a woman's highest calling, well then... Of course, we defer to the good Lord and his word, and that's not just an opinion. That's objectively not just a value. That is a statement of morality, of right and wrong, of virtue, of truth and beauty and goodness, and there's no arguing with it, unless you want to take it up with God. But that's a big question right out the gate. We really should want to know the answer to Who said it? What does God's word say? Continuing on. Knowing my friend's burdens, the statement stung like a slap on the cheek. I inwardly debated whether or not to stand up right then and there and say, sorry, that's absolutely not true. If you've ever led a Bible study or hosted more than a few people with more than a few opinions, you know the feeling. Say something now for the sake of everyone in the room or let it go and try to do damage control later. All right. Comment. 
Jen Oshman, but Garrett Mullet speaking here. Was the statement meant to be a slap on the cheek? And I, 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 I'm not saying that's all that matters, right? It's not all that matters how it was meant, but sometimes women can be rather passive aggressive as a rule. And I think that pacifistic men can be as well. And I think that uh, testosterone has something to do with it, that women typically will be catty uh, when they are trying to get an advantage over other women or put other women in their place or when they feel threatened, they will typically be more passive aggressive. And so it's possible (laughs) in my mind, knowing some of the women I know that Motherhood is a woman's highest calling, could be something said uh, in kind of a passive-aggressive way, depending on who was saying it and what the context was. It's also possible that it was just an uncareful, enthusiastic, hyperbolic. Americans are generally bad about hyperbole, so this wouldn't be out of character for us as uh, people. And it could have just been an overly enthusiastic attempt to try and honor and celebrate and congratulate a young mother uh, at her baby shower. So I th- I think we should consider that. I think that should be something that goes into the way that we respond to this, whether we perceive it as a slap in the cheek or just something uncareful. Uh, if it's the latter and it's just an uncareful hyperbolic statement, then I would say characterizing it as a slap on the cheek is uh, just a tad uh, hyperbolic as well, right? Uh, Moving on. And I quote, I went with the latter option, not having it in me at the time to sour the mood of the shower. Well, that's good. I think that was the right call, Mrs. Oshman. I called my friend facing infertility as soon as I got in my car to go home. I am so sorry you had to hear that, I said. She's smart and strong in the Lord and took it in stride, but it had left a mark for sure. We lamented the destructive impact the falsity might have had on everyone else in the room. My other friend, the single one in attendance, was unfazed, her eyes still on the prize of assumed marriage and motherhood in her future. Okay. Might I just say, again, I think that was the right call. Don't interrupt and crash the baby shower just because you've got a friend who is feeling embarrassed. Uh, You would have caused everyone to feel embarrassed and uh, slapped on the cheek, I dare say, to have crashed the baby shower over one woman, presumably having made an uncareful and hyperbolic statement. The point of the baby shower wasn't presumably to try and denigrate all the women who were unmarried or infertile. The point of the baby shower also wasn't presumably so that Jen Oshman could grandstand about our need to be more inclusive. It wasn't about Jen Oshman or her single friend or her infertile friend. It was about a pregnant woman who was being celebrated and honored for being pregnant. And I think it's okay to just say, let it be that and not (laughs) make it into something else. I think it's okay. And I think it's proper. I think it's good. 
when somebody's throwing a baby shower, let it be a baby shower. That's fine. There are plenty of things, might I just add, as a father of eight, there are plenty of things that mothers and fathers don't get to do anymore that maybe their single friends do get to do. And so what would we say? Oh, you know, don't talk with me about how you're going to go on a vacation to Europe next month because I don't get to do those kinds of things. And it's going to make me feel less than. No, you talk about the fact that you're going to go and tour Europe next month. And I want to hear all about it when you get back. And I want to look at the pictures that you post on social media or you text me. And I want to be happy for you, even though that is not my circumstance. Now, if somebody starts making uncareful statements, trying overly enthusiastically to celebrate you going to Europe, if they start saying things that imply anybody like myself, who has never left the United States of America in any meaningful way, uh, are you know, just ignorant hicks and backwards rubes and all that kind of stuff, well then, okay, let's deal with that. But as far as it goes, if my friend is excited about going to Europe, maybe even for the first time in their lives, it would be wrong for me or anybody on my on my behalf, uh, it would be wrong to rain on that parade and make it about me. It just would be. And so this is a little bit of a two-way street. And yet when it is a time to celebrate and affirm and honor First-time parents, second-time, third-time, seventh-eighth-time parents with a baby shower and to come around them and support them and cheer them on. Let it be that. Let it be that. It's interesting to me as well, neither of Jen's friends seemed all that upset by her telling. It almost reads like they were agreeing with her about others at the party, possibly having been destroyed by the falsity so as to spare her the embarrassment of being all up in arms on their behalf when they, frankly, just weren't all that phased by it. Maybe they just laughed it off. And maybe that's a better response. If something said is just not quite technically true, it doesn't reflect on you that this person said something that was overly broad, exaggerated. Now, if they're being mean and hostile about it, we'll deal with that. But again... I don't mean to belabor the point too much. I think too much is made about single, isolated incidents. And I think too often we broad brush on the church writ large based on I mean, what wh- whether she calls it this or not really amounts to uh, a concern about microaggressions by individuals. Whether microaggressions are a thing or whether that's just a new name, new word for rudeness which has always been a thing. Uh, I don't think it's proper for us to say the whole church has made an idol out of motherhood and marriage because this person was being rude or thoughtless or uncareful. Oops. Moving on. Her next heading is really idols. We love a story that ends with true love and happily ever after, she writes. We're raised on fairy tales, the sweet couple overcoming all odds, uniting in the end and raising beautiful children while the sun sets in the distance. It's the stuff of romantic comedies, 
Hallmark movies, and almost every Disney story. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. And indeed, marriage and motherhood are good gifts. You will never catch me saying otherwise. Romantic love is a blessing. Covenantal love in marriage is remarkable. Marriage as a symbol of Christ's love for the church induces awe and worship in me. Children are a gift from the Lord, Psalm 127, verse 3. Whoever receives these gifts should rejoice and steward them well. But the Christian church, at least the church in the United States, which I love and serve with my whole heart, has a tendency to set marriage and motherhood on a pedestal that scripture does not support. Remember, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, ah, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. End quote. So, first of all, <clears throat> to respond to this section here, this bit about the idols, the quote where she says, remember an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. That's a quote of Tim Keller. So, <laughs> there's strike one. <laughs> I don't much care for Tim Keller. Uh, I'll explain later. Or you can go back and listen to my podcast episodes about social justice, where I explain sufficiently well and at length. Second, though, Tim Keller aside, I don't just dislike the tendency to call an idol everything we can't make a sound argument from the scriptures against. I hate it. If someone can justify this and prove me wrong from the scriptures that this is the way we should go, everything we disagree with, everything we don't like, everything we think is out of balance, is idolatry. Uh, By all means, I'm open to that. But in the meantime, I hear more and more references to Christians valuing this or that thing more than whoever is speaking or writing wants them to, or in a way that they don't want them to. And it seems as though rather than making the case from the passages that deal specifically with the point in question, They throw the behavior, attitude, habit, assertion they don't like into the category of idolatry and pat themselves on the back about it that, okay, yeah, beat that, right? (laughs) It's like a trump card. As long as you say, "Ah, I think that's idolatry, then point A, you proved that they need to repent. Point B, you don't have to go actually looking for the scriptures that would support your more specific concerns with the position that they're taking. And what it seems like to me is if a Christian cares more about, let's say, marriage than some pastor wants them to care about marriage, the pastor doesn't have to say, here specifically is what you're believing about marriage that's not correct, it's not true. All they have to do is say, You're making marriage into an idol, and now do whatever I tell you to. Now stop saying whatever I want you to stop saying about marriage. Now, whatever. Repent. And I just don't think that's, uh, I, I don't think that's, for one, I don't think that's reasonable. For two, I don't think that's a good example. For three, I don't think we see that cover to cover in the scriptures as a method, as a tactic as a legitimate 
response to people being in error. Every time they're in error, we just say this or that is an idolatry issue. Even when it's meat offered to idols, even in the New Testament, even when it's literally meat offered to idols, we're told if you can't in good conscience eat meat that has been prayed over by a pagan in the name of their false god, sold to you in the shrine for some false god, if you can't eat that meat in good conscience, don't buy it, don't eat it, it's fine. Don't go against conscience. But we're also told if your conscience is not bothered by that, it's nothing, it's fine, it's whatever. It's just meat. You can offer it in thanks to God even harder and enjoy it with thanksgiving to the one true God who actually provided it for you. And it's fine. But don't destroy each other with your liberty one way or the other and your difference of conscience one way or the other. Even when it is literally meat offered to idols in the New Testament, I don't see Paul getting all worked up and exercised. Oh, don't you know that it's one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Instead, his focal point is don't destroy one another. Don't use your liberty to destroy one another. Now, I think we might have liberty to wonder personally, am I making an idol out of marriage? I think that's one thing. But I think when broad sweeping generalizations or even accusations from one Christian to another start bringing out idolatry as a charge, we should remember that there are more commandments in the top 10 than just thou shalt not have any other gods before me. There's also thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The same God who said don't worship other gods also said don't slander your neighbor, your brother. Don't say negative, awful, heinous, horrible, ugly things about their character that aren't true or that you don't know to be true. And that's an important point. It's a very important point. You know, this is a very similar problem, as I see it, to the debate I've been having with my cousin Tim about whether we should rebuke fellow Christians for their emotions. And I say, if what they're saying is objectively not true according to God's word, if what they're doing is objectively not good according to God's word, then that's where our corrections should be. And if they need a new heart, if their prayer should be that of David's in the psalm, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me, that's something God has to do. We can't give them a new heart. We can't give them a clean heart and a right spirit. That's something only God can do. And we're not called to look at the inner man directly. We see now as through a glass dimly. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Then we will know fully, even as we are fully known, when the perfect comes. And I do believe that that is the eschaton. I do believe that that is the second coming of Christ. I do believe that that is when Christ returns or calls us home and we are made like him and no longer have a sinful nature to contend with. I believe that's when we will know fully, even as we are fully known. But in the meantime, we don't even know ourselves as well as God knows us. And even if somebody is telling us, hey, I'm feeling a certain way, I have certain feelings, and they're causing me to want to say certain things that I know are not true or do certain things that I know are not good, even there you say, it is written, it is written, it is written. 
Here's what God's word says. That's the premise for the corrective. We don't create in them a clean heart and renew a right spirit in them. Only God does that. So we draw their attention back to the scriptures and we call them to self-control. Somebody who's got runaway emotions that they're dominated by, we say, it is written. And we say that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control or a sound mind in some translations. Well, so also somebody at a baby shower is saying something very uncareful, maybe not intentionally trying to be rude at all, maybe being rude on purpose, trying to knock some other woman down a few notches because she feels threatened by her. I don't know. Either way, the correct response would be, it is written, it is written, it is written. That was Christ's response. I think that's what our response is supposed to be. Moreover, Christ told us with regards to false teachers, and I think this goes for false teaching as well, even if the one sharing or repeating false teaching is not themselves a teacher per se, Jesus says, by your fruits, you are to be known. And by their fruits, you will know them. James says in the New Testament, show me your faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. And again, not to belabor the point, this is not to say that we are saved by works. Lest any man should boast, God forbid, we are saved by grace through faith. But we are called to look at the fruits, which are works. Jesus says specifically of the Pharisees, what they tell you is true, but don't do what they do. Don't act like they act. Don't pray like they pray on the street corners loudly to be heard by men and thought very pious. Don't give like they give, announcing their giving with tambourines and trumpets so they can be thought well of. Pray and give in secret. Let your light so shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But don't do those things so that people think highly of you in a vainglorious way, in a selfish ambition sort of a way. If you are doing it for the latter, you've already received your reward. You will not get an extra portion from God. You just won't. And yet, I think the example of the Pharisees being the primary antagonist for the Lord, for the Savior, in the gospel accounts again and again and again, where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, again and again and again. The big idea is not, first and foremost, is what they're saying technically correct, entirely true, bulletproof, airtight, can't argue with it. The big idea is, is it all matching up? Is what you are saying according to the scriptures? Is it written? Is what you are doing according to the scriptures? Is it written? And if it is written, well then, that's the big idea. I think that calling everything we don't like in the church, everything that we don't like hearing or seeing in the church or in the lives of other Christians, idolatry is lazy, uncareful, unconvincing, manipulative, and cheap. And it needs to stop. We need to study more than just enough to be able to throw out casual accusations of idolatry. For instance, we need to be very, very, very careful that we're not bearing false witness against our neighbor. Now, bearing false witness is not just lying in the abstract. It's a very particular, specific kind of lying and dishonesty 
to bear false witness against our neighbor is to damage their reputation by saying an untrue thing about them that destroys their credibility. That is a very particular kind of lying that makes it into the top 10 commandments. We are not to assassinate the character of one another or anyone, and we are not to tolerate the character of anyone being assassinated. Again and again, charges in the Old Testament and the New Testament are to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses so that you don't just have somebody taking things the wrong way and then getting all worked up and possibly having ulterior motives or conflict of interest and exaggerating and going farther than they ought to. Always, though, the standard is, what did God say we should be about? What did God say was true? What is God's character? What are his promises? What are his commands? Believing that he who finds a wife finds a good thing is biblical. And I'm not saying Jen Oshman disagrees with that. She says here, marriage and motherhood are good gifts. You will never catch me saying otherwise. But I just want to emphasize, it is biblical to believe that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's also biblical to believe that children are a heritage from the Lord and that the man who fills his quiver with them in his youth is blessed. That is straight from the scriptures. That's not an aberration. That's not some unique particular trouble with the church in the United States of America in particular, which again, as I said, I have never left the US, so I wouldn't know. But I think that if the American church is being uncareful in its celebration and promotion of marriage and having children, we need to bring God's word to bear on that with clarity and precision, book, chapter, and verse. Tim Keller quotes will not suffice, particularly for people like me who don't particularly like Tim Keller. It's between him and the Lord, the things he's had to say about social justice and critical race theory and conservative Christians. The Lord rebuke him for that. But I think even if I adored Tim Keller, Tim Keller quotes will not suffice. Talk of this or that being idolatry, whenever there's an imprecise statement or uncareful pendulum swing, that itself is overwrought and may even be a symptom of the latest iteration of the errors of the Gnostics and the Manichaeans. They too would say that prioritizing what is physical in the life of the Christian, what is material in the life of the believer, is unspiritual, just by virtue of the fact that what we might be talking about is physical. They too held that position. We cannot get into this mind-body dualism notion that is not biblical, where we just become proto-Gnostics or proto-Manichaeans. We risk doing that if we are too hasty to throw out charges of idolatry anytime somebody really invests themselves in managing, stewarding, obtaining, using honorably something that is material in nature. God made the material world. He wants to be honored in our way of relating to it. Moving on, though, Jen Oshman writes in her section titled Church Chatter, We in the church can know we've made marriage and motherhood idols by the way we talk about them and frame them in our ministries and programs. Our words and church bulletins reveal, even though it's likely subconscious, that we can't imagine that unmarried or childless adults have really arrived. We doubt their maturity until they have a spouse and some kids to prove it. I know many singles and childless couples who have been wounded, confused, or angered by thoughtless comments made by members of their church family. 
Are you dating anyone? I know of someone I can fix you up with. Don't worry, you'll find the right person soon. The real sanctification happens when you get married or have kids. You wouldn't know. You're not a mom or dad yet. Single and childless adults often feel they're an afterthought. They know they're usually the last ones to be considered to host or lead an event. They sense that others think they're living a prolonged adolescence, and so many simply leave the church. A recent Lifeway study reveals that amongst Christians ages 23 to 30 who stopped regularly attending church, 29% said it was because they no longer felt connected to the people there, end quote. So much to unpack here. There's a lot. First off, two things can be true at the same time. One, the churches which honor marriage and parenting are sometimes rude and inconsiderate towards singles and childless Christians in their midst. And two, that this does not mean we have made marriage and motherhood into idols. Those two things can be true at the same time. To deny the latter is not the same thing as denying the former. I affirm the former. Churches which honor marriage and parenting are sometimes rude and inconsiderate towards singles and childless Christians. I've seen that. I've heard of that. I don't deny it. And yes, I agree with Jen Oshman. I would argue that we need to honor God and one another in our attitude towards singleness and childlessness just as much as we need to honor God and one another in our attitude toward marriage and parenting. However, Christians and the church trying to help fully find wives for their single young men and husbands for their single young women are on the side of the angels, generally speaking. If some young man, some young woman is offended about some well-intentioned efforts at matchmaking, I think we should reserve judgment as to whether they have any right to be offended. If they're feeling embarrassed or less than, or if their real reasons for not being married are just that they don't want to get married, and their reasons for not wanting to get married are more cultural, they might be the ones in the wrong to be offended. The Christians in their church trying to set them up with somebody might be in the right. Now, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul wrote that he would that all were as he was, but <laughs> but that every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband because there is so much sexual immorality in the world. And it, it seems somewhat intuitive, at least it seems reasonable that our churches which are trying to help that happen in a way that honors God and honors our brothers and sisters in the Lord, have not made an idol out of marriage and parenting. Besides that, what else would Jen Oshman suggest we do for singles in our churches? She doesn't want us to speak so highly of marriage because that would embarrass them. She doesn't want us to offer to play matchmaker for them so that they too can be married. What does she want us to do? Just not talk about marriage, not talk highly of marriage, not honor marriage, not honor having children. I'm not saying that's what she's prescribing, but I just don't know that I am getting much in the way of a tangible alternative in what I'm reading here. It's important to remember the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, in the love chapter, that love is not rude, but he also writes in that same chapter, right next door to 
reminders that love is not rude. Love is also not easily offended. And maybe even as we are encouraging those who are not careful enough in the things that they say to consider who's around them, to love, respect, honor those around them, maybe just so we need to be encouraging those who are offended and leaving the churches because they're young people who don't want to get married and don't want to have kids. Uh, Maybe we need to be encouraging those young people to not be so easily offended sometimes. Both can be true at the same time. The next section, trying to counter the culture. She writes, marriage and motherhood are good gifts, but like all good gifts, if we look to marriage and motherhood for our ultimate meaning, value, significance, or security rather than to God himself, then they do indeed become idols. We, especially in the church, can place more weight on these temporary and secondary gifts than they are meant to bear. But how did that happen? How did we come to do this? Okay, so here's another thing, right? This is another objection I have, and it's not particular to Jen Oshman. It's nothing personal against her. She's probably a very, very nice lady. She lives here in Colorado. Her and her husband head up an Acts 29 church in Parker, actually. I don't know her personally. I don't know her husband personally. I don't know their church personally. But this is a bit of a pet peeve of mine as well. And I think it's a point that we should be concerned about. Uh, where <laughs> it, it very often is paired. It's not always, but it's very often paired with over hasty claims about idolatry. There's a number of things wrong with making the premise of your correction that we are going to this, that, or the other thing to find ultimate meaning, value, significance, or security rather than to God himself. Again, part of my concern here is that we're just doing a variation on Gnosticism and Manichaeanism. Part of my concern here is that our prescription would seem to say these things don't really matter. They're not really that important. Instead of, they're very important, but let's put them in the right order and then pursue them with energy, with dedication, with intentionality. Pray, trust the good Lord that he will bless your faithful service according to his word, according to his promises. It seems to me as though there is an uncareful premise in saying, we're looking to the creation rather than the creator if we highly value marriage and parenting. And actually, when I look at the way of a lot of marriages are either not begun at all or the way they're conducted once they are begun or the way that they end when they go awry, I don't think a lot of us are placing too much value in marriage. I think a lot of us are approaching marriage in a very, very self-absorbed, selfish way. I am the center of my own universe sort of a way. I don't think it's marriage that they're making into an idol. I think it's that they are their own God. It's not marriage that's the God. It's themselves. It's self-actualization. It's wanting to be comfortable and wanting to fit in with the zeitgeist and the spirit of this age and the culture around them. But if we say, we're going to leave you being happy and content and finding ultimate meaning and value for yourself and how significant you are and how safe you feel. If we're going to leave that intact and we're just going to say, oh, go to God for that. The premise is still that 
you are the most important thing. Your happiness is the most important thing. What is the chief end of man? It's to love God and enjoy him forever and glorify him forever. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. When we start getting into the commandments, we start looking at the creation mandate, the Great Commission, the Dominion mandate, the Great Commission. Look at Jeremiah 29. When God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and says, say to the exiles in Babylon, build houses, plant gardens, plant vineyards, take wives, have children. Increase in the land, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. An uncareful premise here would have us totally neglect biblical passages like Jeremiah 29. Because, oh wait, you are finding your ultimate meaning, value, significance, or security in having a house, a garden, a vineyard, a wife, children, and seeking the welfare of the city, aka getting political. In actuality, we need to approach every sphere of life where we have opportunity, calling, and responsibility in obedience to Christ. We are stewards of the good gifts the Master has entrusted to us, and there is nothing inherently unspiritual or idolatrous about striving for faithfulness and honor from that conviction or recognizing and honoring those in our midst who are doing well at it, who are serving as good examples of that. There is nothing unspiritual about that so far as it goes. Now, in the particulars, if we go awry as Christians, as a church, it's not because that was a faulty notion, but practically speaking, in the details, maybe we forgot what is written. Maybe we never knew in the first place. Maybe we have not studied to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Moving on. She writes, for decades, the church has been busy fighting cultural counterfeits that are basically the exact opposite of marriage and motherhood. Things already mentioned in this book, like the autonomy of self, hooking up, and abortion. The church has been right to react against the ways the sexual revolution has denigrated women, marriage, and families. But in so doing, we have unwittingly devalued singleness and childlessness, which are no less valuable, no less designed by God, and no less intended by our creator than marriage and parenthood. Now, this might be correct from a certain perspective. I don't like the way it's worded. She may have a point here, Jen Oshman, Mrs. Oshman may have a point here, but I don't know why we would say singleness and childlessness are equally valuable, designed by God and intended by God. I don't, I don't know why we would put it that way. They can be good gifts that God gives to some people, but to say that they're no less valuable, no less designed by God, at some point, I think we should ask the question of what is driving trends in marriage and parenting culturally. The broader culture is the pattern of this world, and we're told to not be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The fact that we have to be told to do that in God's word implies to my way of thinking that we might not, and unless we're told and reminded, and unless we have faithful pastors and deacons and evangelists and teachers, we're not going to do it. We are going to be conformed to the pattern of this world, 
and we are not going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, exactly backwards of what we're told. There are other trends in broader American society, by the way, over the past century that should come to mind besides just the sexual revolution, legalized abortion, hookup culture. What bearing, for instance, does the collective move toward participation trophies in children's sports have here? I think the answer is at least some bearing. I think there is some bearing here on the way Jen Oshman is asking us to reframe marriage and parenting in the American church. At a certain point, if you say, for instance, for example, speaking of marriage, that homosexual marriage is every bit as legitimate as heterosexual marriage, what you have done is you have not elevated homosexual marriage to a place of prominence alongside heterosexual marriage. What you have done is you've destroyed heterosexual marriage. And this is of a piece with socialism. Read Killer Angel by George Grant. Read the short biography of Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, and before that, the Birth Control League. Read the biography of one of the most celebrated feminists in modern history and how she was pioneering the ideas that bore the fruit of the sexual revolution in the 1960s, decades before. She was hobnobbing with the leading intellectuals in the U.S. and Europe and promoting not just ideas about contraceptives being legalized, not just ideas about abortion being legalized. She was promoting the normalization of every kind of sexual deviance and the abolition of marriage and socialism and Satanism. But that's another Pandora's box for another episode. That's <laughs> More needs to be said there than I have time in this episode to unpack for you just yet. The big idea being the legalization of gay marriage, so-called, in the past decade, not just in the U.S., but around the world, when for thousands of years no such thing has ever existed, really amounts to the abolition of marriage. No one will belong to anyone. There are all kinds of great sci-fi movies that are made about what happens when no one belongs to anyone. Read Brave New World. Watch equilibrium. I could go on, but the point is when nobody belongs to anyone, everybody belongs to everyone. That's the socialist utopian idea. And that can creep into the church and be as bad and toxic and dangerous and ungodly. And yes, even satanic as the sexual revolution narrowly defined as abortion. Abortion and the sexual revolution are part of a larger trend, a larger movement. They are not the roots. They are the limbs of, I think you could say, seeds that were planted uh, in the French Revolution and during the Enlightenment. The idea that our kids don't play to win or even that we don't keep score in a lot of sports leagues in this country anymore. Everybody's a winner. We're going to change standardized testing to where everybody gets in based on their intersectionality, whether they're a victim. I feel like there's a little bit of that that's crept into the premise of the complaint here by Jen Oshman to where it's not objectively, it is written, here's what God's word says, that's what we need to stick to, but rather I'm going to start with my friends 
being victims and somebody microaggressing them. And the church needs to now overhaul everything that we put into our bulletins even about marriage and parenting. Moving on. Author Rebecca McLaughlin concludes, quote, while we are right to champion marriage above any other form of sexual relationship, from promiscuity on the one hand to long-term cohabitation on the other, we are not right to champion marriage above faithful singleness. The Apostle Paul would not be impressed, end quote. Now, as an aside, <clears throat> for those unfamiliar, if you go to Rebecca McLaughlin's personal website at rebeccamclaughlin.org. You'll find one of the featured images at the top of the main page is a black and white still of her and Tim Keller sitting on the stage together at some conference or church somewhere. Uh, She's a PhD in English lit and a theology degree from Oak Hill College in London to boot tells me she's doubtless a very intelligent, educated woman. She's the author of several books published by Crossway and the Gospel Coalition. I don't know her. I hear some good things about some of the books she's written from people that I have a high opinion of regarding their discernment. I'll just say afresh, I'll say it again, I'll confess anew my difficulty with anyone who willingly, proudly, openly associates themselves with Tim Keller. Based on his promotion of CRT and social justice, his moral equivalence games with Republicans and Democrats in America, etc. I feel like it's us and it's not a good reason to say whatever she's claiming in her book is bad or wrong or heretical or anything like that. But it gives me pause. That's all I'm saying. For those of you who love Tim Keller, just think of it this way. Okay. And, And this is in the interest of, in the interest of consistency, when I find out that my cousin Tim Mullet and the Bible Bashed podcast are joining Protestia, which was founded by something of a nemesis of mine, Jordan Hall, and that even though Jordan Hall is gone, it's still entirely staffed by people picked by Jordan Hall who tell their donors when he is completely disgraced, oh, we're going to keep on doing exactly what Jordan would have wanted us to be doing. We're going to do exactly what he would have wanted us to do and keep on like we were. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe someday he'll be able to come back. When I find out my own cousin is joining Protestia, whatever his reasons are, whatever between him and the Lord, he might accomplish there. My spidey sense starts tingling and I'm like, "Mm, uh, uh, no, (laughs) so also (laughs) so also oddly enough probably for plenty of people who just can't fathom what category to put me into i promise that's not why i'm doing it whatever merit rebecca mclaughlin has uh independently in terms of what she's writing what she knows what she's saying what she believes what she's advocating the fact that she has featured prominently Glowing testimonials about her books from Sam Albury, Russell Moore, J.D. Greer. It might not mean her books are bad or that she's distributable. It just gives me pause. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'll say. Let's consider what Rebecca McLaughlin's quote is actually about, though. As I already said above, we don't have to take someone else's word for it. We don't have to speculate about what the Apostle Paul 
would or would not have said because we have what he already did say in our Bibles. For instance, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7, he writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So also consider 1 Timothy 2.15. This is one I don't know what to do with, but it's there. (laughs) It's there. (laughs) Quote, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. End quote. There are some in the church today or who claim to be Christians who would love to see us cancel the Apostle Paul because we want to say he said this or that thing. Got to remember cultural context and it doesn't really apply to us because our culture and context are different. And to that I would say, no, no. Go to your state capital. Go to our nation's capital. Tell me what the architecture of our government buildings is patterned off of. It's patterned off of the architecture of the Greeks and the Romans. Our form of government is patterned off of the Greeks and the Romans. With a hearty dose of Christian teaching and Old Testament law in the mix. The cultural context of this is not some abracadabra, you can just make the parts that Paul writes about gender, sexuality, patriarchy, go away with. They just can't. I think also, too, it's important that we define what is faithful singleness. You can't just say faithful singleness and mean any old thing. Paul, an apostle, single, faithful. How many of the other Unmarried, childless folk, young folk, 20 to 30 in our churches are investing themselves like the Apostle Paul was with their singleness. If they're not, if they're just playing games and indulging themselves, well, I suppose they have the freedom to do that, but we also have the freedom to not celebrate them and pretend that they're pretty much the Apostle Paul because they're single and Paul was single. That's not reasonable. And also, I don't think that's what the majority of our single Christians are actually doing with their singleness. And I don't think that's the reason why most of our singles are single in the first place. Look at the statistics. Year over year and decade over decade in America over the past 50 to 100 years where marriage and birth rates are concerned, tell me how the majority of those stats relate to faithful singleness. And my big question, not just for Jen Oshman, and I don't mean to be disrespectful towards her. Again, like I said, she's probably a very, very nice lady. 
My big question for her and anybody who would agree with her position, though, is should we not factor it into our thinking and messaging about marriage and parenting? When these secular, humanist, scientistic, postmodernist, godless cultural trends are the leading causes of singleness and childlessness. The church has not just been so remarkably adept over the past 50 to 100 years in prescribing Paul's kind of singleness. That is not what's driving these stats. It's our culture that is decadent, self-indulgent. Yes, perpetually adolescent as well. Now, that doesn't mean that in the church, anytime we come across a single person who's in their 30s, who's never been married, has no children, or a married couple who doesn't have any children, we should be presumptuous. No, no, I'm not saying that. But then I guess the flip side is where I see articles in, let's say, the Denver Post, for instance, talking about how sexist it is to tell young 20-something women, are you sure? Maybe you should think this over. When they come in wanting a hysterectomy after Roe v. Wade being overturned, because they don't ever want to have kids. Are we so sure that that kind of thinking isn't creeping into the church? Because that's what's the broader society. We want to be able to reach the people who think like that and not offend them when they come into our churches. Well, in that case, I think you've taken your whole seeker-friendly thing way too far. And I think it's really hard to tell the difference between the seeker-friendly thing at that point and being conformed to the pattern of this world. Religion that God the Father, James says, finds holy and acceptable as this, to visit widows and orphans in their need and to keep oneself unspotted from the world where we see huge swings in the past century with regards to marriage, not just whether people get married, but whether they stay married and at what ages they get married and how many times they get married, where we have seen huge swings in whether people have kids, how old they are when they have kids, how many kids they have, how they parent those children. You cannot just say we need to be considerate of the singles and the folks who are infertile. Yes, we should be considerate of them, but there is more that needs to be said here. And if we don't say the rest of it as well, I dare say people who just want to go with the flow are going to run away with the ball in the opposite direction in a way that doesn't honor God. Plain and simple. Moving on, the next section titled, Let's Not Moralize Marriage and Motherhood. Jen Oshman writes, The thing about motherhood is a woman's highest calling is that it's a moral judgment. It says good women are moms. It says motherhood is the best way to be a female. I love being a mom and I count it one of my greatest joys, but it is by no means the result of my good behavior or my wise choices or an indication of my preferred status in God's kingdom. It is not who I am. See, I don't like that. I I, I, I mean, I can't imagine myself personally ever saying the phrase motherhood is a woman's highest calling. I also can't imagine saying the phrase fatherhood is a man's highest calling. I think I can see where in the Bible someone might mistakenly get that idea if they're not careful. I think anyone saying that is not rightly dividing the word of truth as well as they ought to, but we can and should gently correct them. And we don't have to accuse them of idolatry. Furthermore, Again, with the premise, 
not the conclusion, but the premise, the trouble with the statement she's making is that itself, it is a moral judgment. She says that the thing about saying motherhood is a woman's highest calling is that it's a moral judgment. The thing about it, what you mean is we shouldn't because we shouldn't say motherhood is a woman's highest calling because it's a moral judgment. That's a terrible premise. That's a terrible premise. Also, it's self-defeating because you're saying we shouldn't make a moral judgment, but that in itself is a moral judgment. How could that be the thing about it? (laughs) Now, setting aside the fact that the heading for the section reads, let's not moralize marriage and motherhood, and how the big idea behind why we shouldn't is itself a moral judgment, what is morality anyway? We have to define everything these days. We just do. And I hate it. I hate it. It's so dumb. And it slows everything way, way down. But nobody can agree on definitions. And everybody just wants to make up their own all the time. Look up moral. And if you have an old dictionary, look it up in an old dictionary. And if you don't have an old dictionary, you should try and get one. Just saying. As old as you can get. There should be plenty in the world. Go get an old one. At least for comparison. So you can see how definitions have changed over time. It's a very, very sneaky way. Doug Wilson is right. I just listened to his latest podcast about this. He was talking about defining definitions. And he's absolutely right. This is one of the classic and routine ways that the left tries to win debates is by redefining all the terms. It's sneaky. It's underhanded. It's confusing. It's disingenuous and it's dishonest. They are of their father, the devil. That's why they do it. Nevertheless, even according to Oxford Languages, which Google is happy to use as their preferred dictionary, when you look up the definition for a word, moral is defined when it's an adjective as concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior and the goodness or badness of human character, or holding or manifesting high principles for proper conduct. As a noun, moral is defined as a lesson, especially one concerning what is right or prudent that can be derived from a story, a piece of information, or an experience, or a person's standards of behavior or beliefs concerning what is and is not acceptable for them to do. So we're talking right and wrong. We're talking character. We're talking conduct. We're talking behavior. We're talking lessons. Let's not moralize marriage and motherhood. What? No, we should absolutely make moral judgments about marriage and motherhood because God's word does. I'm sorry. I have to disagree with Mrs. Oshman here. Let's do moralize marriage and motherhood. Maybe if we do, then we'll stop having so many out of wedlock births and divorces, so many aborted babies, so many kids in American public schools. Again, stay tuned for my upcoming episode about Battle for the American Mind for more on that piece. But let's not get distracted. She continues, When we moralize marriage and motherhood in this way, we inadvertently create a hierarchy in the church with the moms on top, the more children, the godlier, and the singles without children on the bottom. Unknowingly, we laud the former and alienate the latter. Okay, so with this, Garrett speaking, not Jen Oshman speaking, Garrett replying to Jen Oshman. As I've said before, I don't believe we should assume that parents with more children 
are necessarily godlier than those who have fewer children or no children. I say that as a father of eight, I would never agree to someone saying parents with more children are less godly or less wise the more kids they have, but neither is it reasonable or appropriate to assume we are more godly or more wise just because we have more kids. It does not follow. It might mean that we have more opportunities and more need to be godly and to be wise because there's more at stake, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily are godlier or wiser. Now that said, here again, we got to deal with faulty premises, faulty ways of making an argument or forming an argument, especially in the church, have got to go. Get them out of here. Crossway and Jen Oshman clearly agree that hierarchies are not in and of themselves a bad thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be telling us in her bio at the bottom of this blog post that she's, quote, been in women's ministry for over two decades as a missionary and pastor's wife on three continents. She's the mother of four daughters, the author, the author of <clears throat> Enough About Me, Find Lasting Joy in the Age of Self, and the host of All Things, a podcast about cultural events and trends. Her family currently resides in Colorado, where they planted Redemption Parker, an Acts 29 church, end quote. Clearly, she is okay with, Crossway is okay with creating hierarchies on the basis of these criteria. And generally speaking, I am too. But to say we don't want to create hierarchies and it's a problem to make a moral statement about marriage and motherhood, to moralize marriage and motherhood, and it's a problem to create a hierarchy in the church based on who's approaching marriage and motherhood, how, is just silly. The, the, the real question <laughs> The real question is not whether it's ever appropriate to have hierarchies in the church, as they agree, as demonstrated by their bio for Jen Oshman. Who is Jen Oshman? Why should I care what she has to say about this? Oh, well, you should care because she's been in women's ministry for over two decades as a missionary and pastor's wife on three continents. Wow, man. It sounds to me like you've kind of created a hierarchy there. Oh, by the way, she's also the mother of four daughters. Wait, what was that you were saying about the more children, the godlier? Are you upset because you're surrounded by women who have five, six, seven, eight daughters? I don't know. I jest. I kid. She continues. Not only that, but we diminish diversity. My single friend who is a missionary and a spiritual mother to many says this false idea about motherhood reduces women to one dimension when we are really made for so much more. Our God is creative and has designed each one of us with various skills, abilities, and resources. Whatever you and I do in word or deed, let's do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3.17. For many of us, by God's grace, that will be marriage and motherhood. For many of us, also by God's grace, that will be singleness and childlessness. Who knows what God has for each one of us? Your highest calling in mind is not limited to a temporary rule here on earth. Marriage and motherhood are fleeting. They cannot deliver the sole satisfaction we long for. Our spouses and children will falter and fail. They will never give us what only Jesus can because you and I were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Now, might I respectfully suggest that Mrs. Oshman's friend here, who is single, a missionary, and a spiritual mother to many, as she says, is being lauded and honored for being a missionary and a spiritual mother to many in a way that sounds a bit self-contradictory. If a woman is a physical as well as spiritual mother to her children— Will we say we should not be honored for it in the church because Mrs. Oshman's single and childless friends 
may feel excluded, embarrassed, or envious. But at the same time, Mrs. Oshman is free to give greater honor to her single friend because she's a missionary or because she's a spiritual mother to many. I would put forward for your consideration that if being a wife and mother is a temporary role here on earth, respectfully, so is being a pastor's wife specifically or a missionary or the author of books or a spiritual mother to many. Where my children, by God's grace, will all outlive me by a long, long time, my being a father is not a temporary fleeting thing. It's a lifelong thing. My being a husband is not a temporary thing. It's a lifelong thing. So also my wife, being a wife is not a temporary thing. Her being a mother is not a temporary thing. She continues, if you have made marriage and motherhood the prize of your life, whether they are your roles now or you long for them to be, you will undoubtedly come up against anger and disappointment because they will inevitably fall as idols do. The older brother yells at his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Luke fifteen twenty nine. He was after his father's goods rather than the father himself. But just as the father went to the prodigal, so our father comes to us. Son, the father says, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Luke fifteen thirty one. This promise is for you and me too. All that is the father's is ours. He's been here with us all along, but we have not drawn near. We have sought the gifts instead of the giver. May it not be so. May you and I and every woman, married or not, childless or not, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He is our life, and one day we will appear with him and his whole family in glory. Colossians 3, 2-4. So maybe I am misunderstanding Jen's point here, but this seems like an odd way to argue from the biblical text in a corrective on these things. Why no mention of biblical examples where single and childless women were vulnerable? Could that be because those examples typically conclude with the single women getting husbands and the childless women getting children from the Lord? I suspect so. The prodigal story doesn't fit so well here. But even if it did, what was the point of the older brother being upset after years of faithfulness? It certainly wasn't that he should have run off with his prodigal sibling to waste the whole of both of their inheritance. I don't even know that it was, as she says, that he only cared about what he was getting from his father, not about his father directly. I don't know. I I, I just, I think that the point was that he should have been glad to see his brother come home. Their father welcomed the prodigal brother home, the prodigal son home. And the older brother should have been glad as well, should have taken his cue from the leadership and example of the father. If the inheritance in the story of the prodigal son is analogous to getting married and having children, then what? I don't know if that's what she's trying to say, but if it is, should we be encouraging the women who are married with kids to gladly welcome in the single ladies without kids? I'm just, I'm not sure what point Jen Oshman is trying to make here, but I think part of what's distracting me is that she could have gone with the story of Hannah praying to God for a child because her husband's other wife was tormenting her about it relentlessly. But then that might get weird, right? Crossway and Jen Oshman and the Acts 29 church would have to get into the fact that 
Hannah is not her husband's only wife. And what about that? That's kind of weird. That's going to be messy. Let's skip that story. Well, she could have gone with the story of the widow Ruth sticking by her mother-in-law, Naomi, until she found a husband in Boaz. But there again, I guess it's it gets messy if you're uncomfortable with the idea that we're promoting marriage. So Ruth is married to Naomi's son. And then Naomi's husband and her sons die. And Ruth could have said, uh, you know what? Singleness is a gift. See ya. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. She says, I will go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And God rewards Ruth with a new husband in Boaz, who treats her very, very well. He's very gracious to not only her, but also Naomi. Even though Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because the Lord has made me bitter. But no, we don't go into the story of Ruth. Jenna Oshman doesn't go into the story of Ruth here. I think she could have. That would have been more helpful. She could have gone into the story of Abram and Sarai being promised a child in their old age, Sarai laughing about it, and then giving her maidservant to her husband so they could get a child by her. There again, it gets weird. That really upsets and grates on the feminist sensibilities, the Me Too movement sensibilities, which are still circulating around, swirling around in our churches because they're swirling around in the broader culture. Even if Jen Oshman didn't want to, which apparently she didn't want to because she didn't get into those examples here at least, she could have just challenged the claim that motherhood is a woman's highest calling by asking a very simple question. Where is that written in God's word? When the follow-up comes back with either silence or a sheepish admission that it isn't found (laughs) in God's word, then you proceed to unpack what the Bible actually does say about marriage and motherhood, how both are honored and how God's people are called to honor them, but with a warning that we shouldn't go beyond the biblical text. Arguing the way she has, the primary claim seems to be that single and childless women might get offended or embarrassed or be jealous. Therefore, we shouldn't honor something they don't have. And that's a very dangerous premise to argue from. Accepting that as our premise, we might not honor marriage and motherhood at all, particularly as fewer and fewer young people are getting married at all. And those who are getting married are getting married at 30 years old on average. And when a record number of young people, as many as 30 plus percent in the U.S., are voluntarily sterilizing themselves, getting vasectomies and hysterectomies now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned because they don't ever want to have children, ever. And they're not choosing abstinence, folks. You don't need to get a vasectomy or a hysterectomy if you're just going to be single and faithful. You get a hysterectomy and a vasectomy when you intend to still fool around and have fun. You just don't want to have kids as a result. To be honest, in closing, it does not surprise me that this was published at crossway.org. I don't think it was particularly well-written, but that didn't stop them from publishing Dan Ortland's book. In fact, he was their chief publishing officer until just a few years ago and wrote Gentle and Lowly. I think that book, I mean no disrespect to anybody who loved it, but I think that book 
is a rather feminizing approach to Christian life and thought. I think it also does not deal carefully enough, reverently enough with the biblical text, takes liberties, makes some very dangerous presuppositional claims and insinuations throughout. I think that book is a feminizing approach to Christian life and thought. And now I come to this. Here's this content coming from the other direction, taking as a premise that we don't want single and childless women to feel left out. Therefore, we shouldn't honor marriage and having children so much because idolatry, it's just too convenient. Yes, these can be real problems. Don't get me wrong. Also, the fact that they can be real problems here and there that we need to address does not mean that A, any way we might address them is totally legit because, hey, we got to do something. And B, just because they're real problems that do exist on some level does not mean that this is the biggest problem or that it's typical of the American church at large. My wife and I, I was asking my wife this morning, if she had any final thoughts to add before I record this podcast. She pointed out, <clears throat> the two of us, <laughs> We have been very involved in churches in Ohio, Montana, and now Colorado. And we're connected with family and friends across the U.S. So we have a, a really broad view of what is typical, at least in our theological tradition, our ecclesiastical ecclesiology circle in America. The church we're attending right now is the first church we have ever been involved in, which highly values homeschooling, highly values large families to the point that there's an acceptance and embrace of them. There's a culture of large families and homeschooling families. By no means is it a requirement. By no means is everybody a large family and homeschooling their kids. But let me tell you this, in pretty much every other church that we've been in across the U.S., if homeschooling families are present, they're kind of on the peripheral. They are not at the center. They're off to the side because we don't want to offend the families that send their kids to the public schools or the teachers who teach in the public schools or our principals in the public schools. We don't want to offend them. We need to honor them. We're not going to celebrate and affirm and encourage the homeschooling families that are here because that might make the families that are sending their kids to the public schools feel self-conscious. We're not going to elevate the families that have a lot of kids because that might make the families that have one or two kids and they're done, not because they couldn't have more, but because that would really cramp their style. That would really eat into their standard of living that they like and prefer. We don't want to offend them because they've got a lot of disposable income and they can give generously to the church. Plus also they make up the majority of society. So my experience has not been such that what Jen Oshman is worried about here is typical. I've seen actually just the opposite, where there's a stigma around being a large family, a homeschooling family. I've seen train wrecks of marriages in churches, outside of churches, across the U.S., and not enough of a value placed on the institution of marriage and how we honor God by approaching it and stewarding it very carefully. I think given the direction our society is going right now, we have bigger fish to fry culturally 
And yes, we should put some caution in there. We should absolutely say, hey, hold on a second. Don't say it's the most. Don't say it's the only. But let's do honor motherhood. And let's do honor marriage. And let's do honor those who are doing well with their marriage and their parenting and striving to be faithful in those spheres. Let's do honor them. And let's do encourage our young people to get married. Don't get the Bob Barker treatment. No. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God never rescinded that. Jeremiah 29 is instructive. Build houses, plant gardens and vineyards, take wives, have children, give your sons and your daughters in marriage so that they too can have children. Increase in the land and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. Obey. And stop <laughs> stop saying this, that, and the other thing are idolatry. Hey, what, what is one going to respond with if not, well, I think maybe you're making an idol out of being considerate of your single friend. Hmm, yeah, what do you say to that? I think you're making an idol out of being considerate to your friend who's got uh, fertility problems. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Beat that. No. No, 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 no. We have to be more mature than that and study and search God's word and apply it to ourselves and to one another in these discussions to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, to take every thought captive to demolish strongholds and every thought that sets itself up against the Lordship of Christ. That's what we've got to be about. Do that. I say, get married, have kids, provide for them in all ways. The church needs to come alongside and around young families, promote that, encourage that, facilitate that. Stop being such nervous Nellies that you're going to offend people. Start being more concerned that you're going to offend God. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. It's a Sunday afternoon, almost, nearly, not quite. Stay tuned. Like I said, later this week, we will get more into some topics that I think you will find interesting. By all means, go back and check out some other recent episodes. If you want to understand better the context of uh, some of the updates I plan to give later this week. But for now, as always... Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.